uh, Isaiah chapter 2. Uh, if, you haven't, if you haven't been with us before, we've just launched into the book of Isaiah. And our intention, our, our sincere effort will be to get through at least one chapter each week. But there's a whole lot packed in each chapter. And uh, I hope that you received a, a little half sheet that has some takeaways on it. Um, those are literally for you to take away with you, uh, but they are also insights that I believe uh, the Lord would have us uh, appropriate in our own lives as we, as we look at his scripture together. So uh, verse one of chapter two, the word which came, uh, which Isaiah, the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It's interesting that uh, we we see the word saw in there. The word which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. Um, was it, okay, is he talking about writing on a wall? No, he's talking about a vision. And indeed, that's what we've unpacked prior to this, that uh, all of Isaiah is indeed a vision that the Lord has given to him. And as a result, um, time in the process is not something that is uh, necessarily um, consecutive. It is, it is uh, easily, uh, take, uh, the, Isaiah easily take us, takes us from one place in time to another. And here in the second chapter, he is taking us to the day of the Lord, otherwise known as the Lord's judgment uh, at the end of time. And, and yet it also references, uh, in, in many respects, the current condition of Judah and Jerusalem at the time of his writing. So it, this, this intro is very similar to the intro in uh, chapter 1. However, chapter 1 unpacks um, Isaiah's vision in a very general sense. And here in chapter 2, he begins to dig into the specifics. And he uh, reveals here in chapter 2 two major themes of six major themes that he is going to unpack over and over for us throughout our study. Uh, most specifically, the house of the Lord, uh, we're going to dig into that tonight in verses 1 through 4, and then verses 5 through 20 speak of the day of the Lord. The house of the Lord speaks of the the promise of peace that is a result of God's uh, provision through his house. What is his house but his dwelling place where he lives? And, um, and the day of the Lord uh, honestly can be considered uh, a day of terror that, that will come upon the earth and come upon specific individuals. And he is going to unpack that for us. There are four other themes that I'm going to uh, leave for a later study. Um, but he chooses these themes as kind of a kind of a framework or a skeleton on which he will uh, he will begin to put the the vision together on for us. So he puts out these themes as prophetic propositions again that will appear over and over. Uh, so the house of the Lord, the promise of peace. Let's look at verse two through four. Now it will come about in 
in the, in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised up above the hills and the nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God, the God of Jacob. And he, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths, for the law will go forth from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between nations and render decisions for many peoples, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war." Won't that be a glorious day? Um, now, just as the uh, love had the last word in the previous chapter, um, verse 27, Zion will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness. That's the last big statement of love that, that uh, Isaiah speaks according to the, the word of the Lord in chapter 1. But here in chapter 2, hope for the future gets the first word. So we have love and we have hope, and hope builds on love. It will come about. Um, note that hope is seated in the future. What does uh, the writer of Hebrews say? Hope is that which we uh, look forward to, right? And so it has to do with the future. And Isaiah says, in the last days, that's a long way from now or a long way from then. Uh, who knows how long that is, right, honestly? The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as a chief of the mountains, and it will be raised up above the hills, and the nations will stream to it. The primary theme here is to show God's vision for his creation, his earth. Uh, and it comes through the house of the Lord located on Mount Zion. Now, where is Mount Zion? It is his city of Jerusalem. And, and um, we, we talked previously about the word Zion and what it means and the fact that today it means something very different. It has political connotations that were not there pre, uh, in Isaiah's time. With that said, it does speak of God's sovereign rule uh, in that place. And in that uh, place we see this vision of the teaching of righteousness and the demonstration of justice that's laid out. And it reveals the fact that God is sovereign. It reveals the fact that this is his universal reign. Um, we, we have in our country this, this phrase, one nation under God. I, I, honestly, we should probably be probably be asking, okay, which God is that these days, right? Um, certainly at the founding of our nation, this, this idea of one nation under God indeed spoke of Yahweh, the God of, uh, the God of Christianity, the God of uh, the Judeo uh, community. That was indeed the focus there. 
here we see this idea here that God's vision is not that just one nation would be under his rule, but all the earth would be under his rule. Um, if you want, I encourage you to turn to Micah. It's to the right. Micah is a, uh, is a what we call a minor prophet, but Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah. And uh, we see in the first four verses of Micah, a mirror image of what we see here in Isaiah chapter 2. I'll just read it for you if you're not there yet. And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised up above the hills and the people will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord in the house of God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. Never again will they train for war. Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, that is uh, almost verbatim, not exactly, but almost verbatim to what we see here in Isaiah. The question is, who's quoting who, right? Uh, in some respect, it really doesn't matter because this is the word of the Lord, right? After all, it's not Micah quoting Isaiah or Isaiah quoting Micah. It's both of them quoting God. And, and so that, that question, who's quoting who, may be a little, little bit immaterial. But I want to point out, again, that Isaiah and Micah were prophets of the same era. However, if you look at Micah, um, you discover that, that uh, he, he prophesied during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah of Judah. Those three kings are... Uh, the three kings that come after Uzziah. And Uzziah was the king uh, under which Isaiah began to prophesy, or during his reign, Isaiah began to prophesy. So it is very likely that Micah is taking this quote from Isaiah's prophecy. And um, it is, it is rooted in the idea, again, of God's universal reign, his overarching sovereignty over all creation. Genesis 12, we see God's call to Abram. Uh, before his name was changed to Abraham, okay? And he speaks to Abram and he says, and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And then this phrase, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's uh, Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, if you're taking notes. And it, again, it speaks of the idea that God intends to bless all of the nations of the earth. Um, 
in this present context that Isaiah is, is in, he uh, makes it a challenge to his contemporaries. If the world is ever to say, come, let us go, let us go, the Lord must, or, or the Lord's people must also say, come, let us go, let us go up to the mountain of the house of the Lord. Now, again, in this in these first few verses, that, that thought comes from the nations. Curious. Now, the question is, what is God's word to Isaiah? If that's, if that's God's word to Isaiah in his context, in other words, hey, look, if the, the nations are doing that, we as God's people, we certainly ought to be doing that as well. Question comes to us, what is Isaiah, what are these words that Isaiah is recording saying to us in our context? Well, if we take the, the, how, the imagery of the house of the Lord uh, as the temple in Jerusalem, the place where God dwells, what would you consider to be the house of the Lord now? Because there is no temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem now, is there? So what would the house of the Lord be now? Close, in us, absolutely. Um, but it's more than that. Say it again. So yes, he's in our, in, in our hearts individually. But if you, if you go to 1 Peter, flip way over to the near the end of your Bible to 1 Peter. If you get to Revelation, you've gone too far. If you get to 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, you've gone just a little bit too far. Come back to 1 Peter chapter 2. And there Peter unfolds this understanding for the New Testament church that they themselves are the house of, of God. It is, it is not simply them as individuals. It is the building of the community of faith. There Peter writes in, in chapter 2, starting in verse 4, and coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. Where in the world does that come from? just happens to come from Isaiah chapter 28 verse 16 and he who, he who believes in him will not be disappointed Peter goes on in verse 7 this precious value then is for you who believe but for those who disbelieve then he quotes another scripture the stone which the builders rejected this has become the very chief cornerstone and that's taken from Psalm 118 um, uh, the, the, uh, the words of David. It's interesting, we actually uh, talked about Psalm 118 on Sunday, on the weekend, with our call to worship. 
It's in that psalm that David unpacks that this is the day that the Lord has made and we will rejoice and be glad in it. It's curious to me that David's response in that way is also connected with the idea that the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. That day of rejection, is that the day the Lord has made? That's an honest question. But I think the answer is absolutely yes. Because even in that rejection, we see the story of salvation coming through Jesus, who is the chief cornerstone. Now, there's a personal takeaway here for us as, as individuals and as a church. We, who are the church are the household of faith now. We are the house of the Lord. And does does God give us this very same purpose that he gives to uh, Judah and Jerusalem in Isaiah? And the answer is yes. So what is that purpose? That purpose is is to teach about righteousness, the spirit of righteousness, and to demonstrate justice to teach righteousness and to demonstrate justice. What's the difference between teaching and demonstrating? It's the difference between talking about it and actually doing it. And that's, that's, the, that's the mandate of the Lord for us today, even as his people. Now, it's, it's important for us to understand that with those two mandates, there's not an either or involved with them. It's not, well, the church can be a great place of teaching. Or the church is just a great place of doing. No, it's both. And, and uh, I, my sense is that it's very easy for us as his people, as his uh, the stones being built together in a spiritual house as God's people, it's real easy for us to fall into this trap to say, well, um, it's all about teaching. And I'm, I'm going to sit here and soak it up. And that's what I do. I come to church and I sit and soak. What happens when you sit in a bathtub too long? You shrivel up like a prune, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. And not only that, that skin of yours becomes exceedingly um, fragile. And there is something to be said for getting out and doing. What does doing do for us? What does a working hand look like? It's got calluses on it. And it's not easily, it's not easily torn apart. It becomes rough and tumble, able to handle and grip the doing that is required to accomplish justice. Um, now, I can say as well that within the work of God within his church, conversion is that entry point, right? But conscience is also at work. They work together just as the teaching and the doing go together. Conversion and conscience go together. They, they, 
they should not be simply separated. Unfortunately, within the context of, let me say, popular Christianity, it's real easy for us to simply celebrate our salvation, our conversion, but not really get involved, not allow our heads to be challenged by our conscience. What is our conscience all about? It's about calling right, right, and wrong, wrong. And we too easily say, I'm going to just close my eyes to that thing. I'm going to close my eyes to that thing that is wrong and just celebrate my salvation. Without allowing the Lord to prick our conscience, allowing the Lord to convict us by his spirit. That's a huge issue in the family of faith today. And I say family of faith because all of us belong to that. Uh, those who have experienced conversion, that salvation that we celebrate. But, and so even those who are afraid to allow their conscience to speak, um, yeah, they are part of the family of faith. But they're missing out on part of God's intention for his people, for his household. It is that connection between uh, conversion and conscience, between the learning and the doing, that, that I would venture to say that's what makes, that's what makes um, the church worth joining. It's what makes the church worth being a part of. Um, because it's, it's more than flash. It is real life substance. Now, that's, that's a whole nother conversation in and, it's, in and of itself, but we're gonna go on. Verse three, come many peoples will come and say, and many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob. Um, now, note that the response is the peoples or the nations. God's vision is very, very evangelistic. And they say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. It's a universal acknowledgement of the fact that uh, Yahweh is God. He is who he says he is. And it's the universal embrace of that truth. Um, it's important to note that this also includes the removal of national barriers. Nationalism doesn't raise its head because we're all flooding, going to the same place. There's... there's uh, uh, the, the doing away of divisions within religion. There's the doing away of divisions within politics. There, uh, there is uh, the doing away of divisions between cultures. There's no we and them going on. All the nations are seen coming and saying, come, let's all go. Let's all go to the house of the mountain of the Lord. Um, uh, 
number two, he says that, that he may teach us. That's, that speaks of a universal willingness to learn. Um, this willingness to learn has its beginning. Its starting point is humility. Um, think about it. If you're ever going to really learn anything, you've got to acknowledge the fact that you don't know that. And that is, that is a big piece of, of that willingness to learn. And thirdly, it says that, and that we may walk. Again, that speaks of a universal readiness to do what we've learned. To, um, the idea of walking is a biblical figure of speech to, that says um, the whole conduct of my life is wrapped up in this. Um, the Apostle Paul speaks of this idea of having a walk that is worthy of the calling uh, with which you are called. Ephesians chapter 4 uh, speaks of that. And again, it means he meant that to have, uh, to live a life that is worthy of the call of God. So our personal takeaways here are God's vision for all people, and that includes us. It's not just those people out there. It is all people, including us. His vision includes coming, coming and acknowledging Yahweh for who he is, the sovereign Lord. It also includes the idea of learning, a willingness, a humility that says, I need to know this. I need to learn this. And then a readiness to live, to do, to act out, to, to participate in what we've learned. Verse 4, the, the beginning of verse 4 says, and he will judge between the nations. In other words, he will render decisions for many peoples. See, transformation begins with submission to God's decisions. Transformation begins with submission to God's decisions. I don't know about you, but I encounter many people who want to suggest that God must have gotten some of this wrong. We see it often, don't we? It doesn't, it doesn't take long for us to recognize that in our culture, many would say, many who are believers, honestly, they believe and they, they may have an, uh, a, a salvation experience by the grace of God, and yet they are unwilling to say that God really meant what he said. Um, Transformation begins with submission to God's judgments, his decisions. In other words, it's simple, willing obedience to what he says. Um, it's important to note as well that submission actually liberates us. It sets us free um, because it's voluntary. I say that because submission is a choice. Um, domination 
is not a choice. If you're dominated by somebody, it's, it's, it's not a choice. And domination debilitates. It removes choice. But submission is voluntary and it liberates. Yielding and obedience to God brings life. The second half of verse 4, then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up nation against na uh, sword against nation and never again will they train for war. That's a pretty big deal. God's recipe for peace and prosperity is the reworking or the transformation of weapons of war. Now, what are the weapons of war? Well, let's look. Economically, who would say that economics is a weapon of war? What do we have going? What does the United States have going with Iran right now? Sanctions. That's a weapon of war. And, and economically, God says nations must turn non-productive military spending into peaceful production in order to stimulate growth, cultivate growth, beating a sword into a plowshare. Understand the imagery there? Politically, a peace pact needs to be signed that will stop the fighting. Violence tends to beget violence. It's not hard to see. I mean, I, I watched just a snippet of the news uh, last night and saw a college basketball brawl. Violence begets violence. And God says, no, it needs to stop. And militarily, training for war needs to stop. Think about it. If you're trained for something and you never get to do it, what happens? Two, one of two things. Either real serious frustration that works itself out sideways or complete disillusionment. So God says training for war has to come to an end. Um, because sooner or later, in preparation for war, there will be the practice of war. And it's not hard to see that. We, um, we have this mantra in the United States ever since Ronald Reagan was president. Some of you remember him. And, and that mantra was peace through strength, right? So we build up a great military, spend all of this money on preparing for war so that we won't use it. There's something flawed in that logic. I just have to say, it's not does not reflect what the scripture speaks of here. It's interesting that at the uh, at the entrance of the the uh, United Nations building in New York City, 
This very scripture is inscripted in granite along with an image of an artisan beating a sword into a plowshare. And every political leader that walks into that building walks right past this. Atheists, people of different religions, everyone alike comes under the shadow of this reality. And it's not just there because it's in the architecture. This is God's truth. God said it. God said it. And the truth is, if he's sovereign, as he says he is, if he said it, that settles it. No more argument. This is the path to peace. So what is our personal takeaway from this? Um, to move from perpetuating conflict to propagating life. Think about it. How do we get there? Transformation begins with submission to God's decisions. And God's recipe for peace and prosperity is the transformation of the weapons of war. Now, in my personal life, I have to ask this question. What do I use? What weapons do I have at my disposal when I am involved in conflict? When I am involved in warfare, what are, my, what are the weapons that I use? Now, I want to, I, want, I have to distinguish between carnal warfare and spiritual warfare here. Okay, because the weapons of our spiritual warfare are not carnal, according to the Apostle Paul. But I have to ask myself, when I'm involved in warfare, and I'm, we're talking conflict, interpersonal conflict, conflict between one organization and another, one body of people and another body of people, or individuals. What are our weapons of war? If we can identify them, we can then begin to say, ask the question, how can I transform them into something that cultivates life instead of eliminating it? A, a, a very quick illustration of that is if one of my weapons that I use is raising my voice and shouting as though I'm the one and only authority in the room. If that's one of the ways that I, I involve myself in conflict, what must I do to transform that weapon of war, which brings death, into an implement that cultivates life? That's a serious question for every single one of us. It, cause, it is cause for serious introspection. Verses four, five through eight. The day of the Lord. This is a time of terror. Um, verse five. Come, let us walk in the light. Let us walk in the light. Um, notice that the admonition assumes that they are not walking in the light. 
but God still gives them the invitation anyway. I love that. God will continue to give the invitation until the judgment is complete. That's the, that's the hallmark of his grace. It is also the picture of prophecy that we see throughout Isaiah. It is not simply about judgment. It always includes redemption. In the light, just uh, quickly, uh, means in the light of God's favor. Um, we, we often uh, speak the ironic blessing. That's not ironic blessing, but the Aaronic blessing, the one that Aaron, the priest of God, spoke over his people. And we find it in number six. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. That idea of lifting up his countenance and his face shining on us speaks of his favor resting upon us. Understand that his favor is not simply all things going good for us. His favor also must include always a conformity to his purpose and his plan. Um, it also means the light of his presence, his care. Um, Psalm 27, uh, the psalmist writes, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And it is also the light of truth. Psalm 43 um, the psalmist writes, I send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and your dwelling places. And the light of God's truth is revealed in his word. Psalm 119, if you're, if you're not aware, it's the longest, uh, longest book in the Bible. And it uh, has... Uh, included in it just this wonderful illustration of the word of God. Verse 105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So why does God assume that the people that he's prophesying to aren't walking in the light? Well, it's not hard to see. Look at verse six. You have... This is what you've done. The evidence is clear. You have abandoned your people. You've abandoned the house of Jacob or the house of Israel. And how does God know that? Because they are filled with the influences from the east. Literally, the, the, the Hebrew rendition speaks a, a, more uh, literally as you are full of the east. They look eastward to the sun rising uh, for all that they need. And they are soothsayers like the Philistines. They're fortune tellers like the Philistines. And, they're, and they strike bargains with children of foreigners. Um, this uh, is speaking actually of the idea of clasping hands and joining with pagans. More like you make agreements with and alliances with pagans. Their land 
has also been filled with silver and gold, and there are no end to their treasures. Their land has also been filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. So they have their security in wealth. They have their security in military power. Verse 8, their land has been filled with idols. They worship the work of their hands, that which their fingers have made. It's, it's curious because the word idols here actually in the Hebrew uh, is very, it, it's, it's kind of a pun um, because it's Elohim, Elohim. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Elohim is the name of the triune God. But Elohim means idol or actually non-entity. You worship that which is nothing is what, is what the Lord is saying here. So the catalog of sin that Isaiah lists is um, substitutes for trusting God include Eastern religions, astrological divinations, pagan analyses, uh, alliances, material wealth, military might, religious idols, and even technical advancement, the work of your hands. Does that sound familiar to anybody? I have to tell you that the abandonment of trusting God leads, this, leads to the very same substitutes in every generation. It's here now, just like it was in Isaiah's day. Verse 9, so the common man has been humbled and the man of importance has been abased. Do not forgive them. This idea of being humbled and abased is very much the same thing. It's about pushing down and, and forcing, forcing one to be humiliated. Um, note that both the common man and the man of importance have the very same fate. They are both the same in God's eyes. We tend to make differentiation between the two, do we not? Neither one gets a pass or is exempted from the cost of being, uh, being a part of the house of, of Jacob in which idolatry is practiced. The reality here, and this is a, this is a concept that's difficult for us as, as Americans to really wrap our brains around. The concept here is collective guilt. In other words, I'm guilty because we're guilty. Um, guilt by association. Now, doesn't that just make the hair on your, the back of your neck stand up and make you want to stand up and say, I am not guilty by association. I'm not guilty because he's guilty. And yet that is precisely what is being talked about here. The Apostle Paul unpacks this for us in Romans chapter 5. I encourage you to read Romans 5 uh, when you go home this evening. 
let me just read the latter part of that chapter, verse 18. So then as though one transgression, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification for the life of all men. You see, if we're going to claim the same Savior and say we're all saved by the blood of Jesus, we also have to accept the fact that we are all guilty together. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In other words, the law came in and pointed out just how sinful we are, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that in, as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through the righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I don't know about you, but that's, that's an amazing, that's an amazing picture of, of this which we find to be so comfortable with the idea that we are guilt by guilty by association. We want to dismiss that and stand up and say, no. I'm, I'm responsible for myself. Okay. You sinner, you. Stand alone then. But I would rather stand in the company with all the redeemed because even as all of those condemned together are sentenced to death, God provides a way of salvation for all of them through one man. Um, we're not going to get past this tonight. I'm sorry. My, my effort to get all the way through in one week um, has been thwarted. Several years ago, actually, right before the turn of the century in 1999, um, a group of friends wrote a song together called Because of One Man. And it goes like this. How can it be that I'm considered guilty? Why am I condemned for somebody else's sin? How can it be that just for being born, I am now accused of sin I didn't choose? It's the nature of man to turn away from God's master plan. And we must all admit that we're part of it, guilty as charged, now we stand. But because of one man, because of one man we inherit sin and death, but because of one man we are offered righteousness. You see, it's God's plan that though we are condemned, this should never be our end, for he covers all our sins. Because of one man. How can it be that I'm considered righteous, redeemed by saving grace because Jesus took my place? How can it be that simply by believing, Jesus sets me free from the chains of sin around me? It's God's gift, don't you see? 
He paid my debt instead of me. Yes, he was crucified and conquered death with life. Because of this, now we're free. Because of one man, we inherit sin and death. Because of one man, we are offered righteousness. You see, it's God's plan that though we are condemned with, this should never be our end, for he covers all our sin because of one man. On the one hand, there is Adam. On the other hand, there is Jesus. The first man brought, brought us bondage. The second, well, he frees us. And though we're deserving of Adam's dreaded death, we can be forgiven and our souls can be at rest. Amen and amen. Verse 9, quickly, continued, but do not forgive them. That's an awful statement, isn't it? The Hebrew imperative here not only commands, but it also is used to express the inevitable outcome. The conviction that something cannot or should not happen. There's no way you can forgive them, God. So our personal takeaways with this section are whether we like it or not, we're guilty by association. No one is exempt. But thanks be to God, we are also redeemed by association. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this good news. In the midst of great uh, challenge, you've unpacked for us the miracle of salvation brought to us through Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, that that is the result of your generosity toward us, not by, by virtue of what any of us have done. We recognize, Jesus, that yes, we are guilty, but we have been redeemed by virtue of your great gift to all of humanity. All you require is the acceptance of the gift. Tonight, we are here because, Lord, we celebrate the acceptance of that gift. We pray that you would continue to teach us by your spirit through the words of Isaiah. And yes, even the Apostle Paul in Romans 5. Thank you for your grace toward us in that. In Jesus' name.